Thank you, Joe. Good morning again. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 as we continue our exposition of this great sermonic letter. And yes, I do. I have heard of sunblock. I was asked that earlier. I'm not trying to illustrate what it would be like to be near Sinai this morning, though it's not bad. But I am told that Pastor Doug has the exact same sunburn as I do because he was sitting to my right yesterday at our baseball tournament for about eight hours and the sun with a hat and sunglasses. So you can, you can see that. So I'm not trying to distract you this morning, and I appreciate, the, I appreciate the, the helpful advice I received just a bit earlier. So Hebrews chapter 12, as we come to consider this morning two mountains, the mountain of what we might call the mountain of works, and then... I want us to come to the mountain of grace this morning. So let's stand and honor the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning of verse 18, I'll read to verse 24. Let us hear now the Word of the Lord. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessings to this reading. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father of grace, Father of mercy, I pray this morning you would open our eyes to see great things from your law. And I ask that you would do in us what you alone can do. As Pastor Clay read earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, who is sufficient for these things? Lord, I am not sufficient for these things. But it is you who makes us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So God, this morning I pray we would busy ourselves with this text and all that it means for us. And the bad news that says do, but the good news that says done. That's, done in our, that's been done for us. So God, strengthen us and plant your word deep in us. Cause an abundant harvest of righteousness to grow up in us this day. For your glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, those of you who are, have been here a while know that one of my favorite scenes from the Lord of the Rings, and I, this is a great illustration, I wouldn't use it more than once, okay? Of course, I love the Lord of the Rings, if some of you... Our Lord of the Rings geeks too, like me. But one of my favorite scenes is that the Prancing Pony in the first book, and I think it's in the first movie, although they do run together at this point. But they're the Prancing Pony and Frodo and the Fellowship have come, and they're in there, and they're frolicking, and they're having a good time. And in a moment of, of, uh, of, of foolishness, Frodo slips on the ring and becomes invisible. And that's when they learn about a man named Aragorn who's sitting in a corner, the ranger, Strider, Aragorn, sitting in the corner, with a, a bit of a sinister look about him, got a hood over his head. 
and he comes, he gets up out of his seat and comes and grabs Frodo by the collar. And he, by this time, he's got the ring off. He's reappeared. He grabs off the collar and he says, are you frightened? So he pulls Frodo up and Frodo's a tiny guy. Aragorn's a big guy. Pulls him right up in his face and says, are you frightened? And he says, yes. He says, you're not frightened enough. And I use that because we're never we're never frightened enough. We think far too highly of ourselves. And I think it's the perfect illustration because I think that's what the author is saying to his audience this morning. In the original audience of this text. You think you're frightened? Oh no. You're not frightened enough. Because you've encountered the Holy One of Israel. The Holy God of glory. The sovereign creator of the universe. The audience here, of course, as we've walked through this, you know by now, the audience to whom it was written, they fear persecution, criticism, ridicule, economic loss, imprisonment, perhaps even martyrdom for their faith. And they're frightened. And they're tempted to return to Judaism where they'll have it quite a bit easier. But he's saying, oh, you're not frightened enough. And as God's people, I think that's always true of us. That the fear of God, Paul says, is not before their eyes. And is it before our eyes? When we read this text, it should be. But then our fears are allayed when we come to the second mountain. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. So the author here presents his original audience and us with a picture of something far more fear-inspiring than any punishment a human being can inflict. And that is the white, hot perfect holiness of God. Far more frightening. And I fear in the evangelical church today, we are not frightened enough because we have this, what Michael Scott Horton calls this easy, greasy familiarity with God. You know, we have our t-shirts, Jesus is my homeboy. I got news for you, he's not your homeboy. He's your Lord and your Savior who could call down 12 legions of angels and crush the opposition before him, but chooses not to. That's the Lord whom we serve, right? We're not frightened enough. Because every person will be judged on one or two bases. It is on the basis of law or the basis of grace. By your own works or by Christ's work. By the provisions of the one mountain, Sinai, or the provisions of the other, the mountain of grace. Because God has two sets of books. God likes books. That's why I like books. He wrote a book, right? But in eternity, he has two sets of books. One has the names of all who rejected God, those who have gone out into a godless eternity. And the other, we, Scripture calls the Lamb's Book of Life, is written all of God's elect, all of His people, every one of you. If you are in Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that is the best book to be mentioned in, in the history of the world, <laughs> in the history of eternity. The Lamb's Book of Life. For all those who have accepted God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Savior in the book of life, and let's call it the book of death, those who are lost. Which book is your name written in this morning? Which name? Which book? Which mountain have you come to? We'll, we'll unpack this as we walk through here. Because those who are written in the book of death will be judged by their own works. Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will be judged by what Christ has done on their behalf. So it's either your works or the work he came to do, that the Father said to him to do. Which will it be? 
That's the measuring stick by which you'll be measured. Every human being in the world, in the history of the world. Your own righteousness, which Isaiah said is nothing more than a filthy garment. That's how he describes our best day. I love the old hymn, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. In other words, the best day I have and my mind is clearest, the best frame of mind is just enough to condemn me. It's filthy rags. But of course it goes on to say, holy lean on Jesus' name, right? The Christ the solid rock. So which is it? I love mountains. Most of you know I grew up in the mountains down in North Georgia because I talk about them all the time, the Appalachian Mountains down there. Beautiful place. I didn't realize that when I was growing up. I realize it more now that I'm gone. You don't know what you got until it's gone. That's the way we are, right? I thought it was a hick town I wanted to get away from, but now it's, it looks nice. Those mountains are beautiful. And growing up and as a teenager, I worked at Brasstown Bald. I drove the bus up there one summer, the tallest mountain in Georgia, one of the tallest mountains in the southeast. It was majestic. I loved that job. Because we came to one place, the big turn, you made a big turn, about a, oh, almost a 180 degree turn. And, and if you were to go straight, you would fall about 1,200 feet. And so I like to make jokes about the brakes when I got there, but I digress. So uh, there's that mountain. I love that. And then from the, my, my parents' front yard, you could see Blood Mountain, the second tallest mountain in Georgia, where an old, famous old Indian war took place in the 18th century. So I love mountains. But we've come to mountain, these two mountains in the text, and one of them is very, very frightening. But the other one helps us through our fright. The first one is this, Mount Sinai, verses 18 to 21. Mount Sinai, the Old Testament, where the law was given, the law of God. That's the first one. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. All the way back to the left, almost to the front of the Bible. And here's, I want to set this up by reading this, verses 7 to 25. This is an extended reading, but just stay with me. You might want to turn there. Exodus 19, 7 to 25. This is the scene that the author is in the background of what the author is writing here. So we need to set, get the picture here. He says, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words to the, of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you, and may also believe you forever. So God's coming in a cloud on Mount Sinai. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today. Make them, make them uh, able to come into my presence to worship. To make them pure. And tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. Imagine this. God is going to meet with us on the mountain on the third day. Man, I'd like to go up there on the third day, wouldn't you? It's because I'm not frightened enough. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Vaporized. You won't survive this encounter with God if you touch the mountain, he says. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. And that means shot with an arrow, not with a 9 millimeter or something, but, you know, whatever, whatever floats your boat. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the, the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, taking his life into his own hands here. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, don't come near. Chapter 20, verses 18 to 21. Here's the response of the people. They say, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. They didn't go near God. And they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. See, there's the problem. Sin is the problem. God's holiness is the problem. That's why it's so fearful. They're sinners in the presence of a holy God. That's the problem. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So the writer of Hebrews gets in his the Wayback Machine and he takes us to Mount Sinai where Moses brought Israel out in the Exodus to meet with God. That's what's happening here in Exodus 19 and 20. When God delivered his people from bondage to Egypt, he did not just say, Go and do whatever you want to do. We're going to turn you loose. You're out. He didn't say that at all. He brought them to the mountain where he dwelt. Why? So they could worship him. Come and worship me. But not too close because you're a sinner and I'm a holy God. And therein lies the problem. And that's why I say we're not frightened enough. This speaks of our deliverance. I think this is an excellent reminder that the purpose of our deliverance, the children of Israel and their story, the purpose of the church is to worship and serve God. We're not here to please the world. We're not here to market anything. We don't, I'm not selling anything. I'm a terrible salesman. We'd go broke if I did that. And we're not here for that, are we? We're not peddlers of the gospel. We're not here for that. We're not here to serve a secular culture. But we're here to please God this morning and every Lord's Day morning through worship him, worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. That's the only reason we're here. People say, well, you're here for the lost. Well, peripherally, when the lost come here, they will, should see a feeding of the sheep of the people of God. That's what the purpose of the church is. That's what the Lord's Day is about. A lot of confusion in evangelicalism about this. Oh, we're here. We want, do we want lost people to come here? Are you saying we don't? know? absolutely. Of course, we want you here. 
But when you come here, you should see the gospel here rehearsed in the word and the singing. And we take the Lord's Supper and all those things. So can they be saved? Well, absolutely. We can't keep them from being saved, can we? <laughs> God's grace. We can't get in the way of God's grace. But we're here to worship, and that's why they came. They were led out of bondage to worship. They quickly forgot this and how quickly we do by replacing Lord's Day worship with all everything in the world but worship. We have talked, I've talked a lot about that, so I won't revisit that. But we've been delivered to worship Him. I mean, John, John Piper said, missions exist because worship doesn't. That's exactly right. There's no way I can say that better myself. That's beautiful, and it's true, and it's sad, but it should drive us out from here. We're here to please God through worship. But it is not to Mount Sinai in the desert that Christians have, are told they have come. We've not come to this mountain, praise God. We've not come to the place where we will be vaporized this morning. Mount Sinai is brought into the picture here only to present a contrast. We don't want to miss the contrast, okay? This is the, really at the heart of the, the meaning of the passage by which the mountain of our salvation may be seen more clearly. God wants us to see His grace much more clearly by seeing what we've been rescued from. Because as I've said before, so I say again, if you're outside of Christ this morning, then your biggest problem is God. It's not that you, God has a wonderful plan for your life and you've been you know, mistreated and you need justice, all this stuff. No, you don't want justice. We cry about justice all the time. Believe me, if God gave us justice instead of grace, none of us would be here. We'd all be in the very bottom of hell this very morning. And we see just a, a hint of this on Mount Sinai, don't we? This holy God who comes down and says, don't let them get close to me because they're sinners. I'll vaporize them if they come close to me. And you see this when, when, when worship is mishandled in, in several places in the Old Testament. They're just vaporized. Even when they mean well. Well, they're well-meaning. It doesn't matter. This is an Uzzah who's touched the, the Ten Commandments. He's just vaporized. Because it would be better for, uh, for it to fall in the dirt and get dirt on it than for a sinful hand to touch it and disobey God. That's how sinful we are and how holy God is. What you have here, though, is shock and awe. This contrast between Sinai, between Moses and Christ, between law and gospel. Of course, law informs the gospel, right? It's not been abrogated and done away with. We talked about that when I preached through the, the Ten Commandments a couple of years ago. But what we have here is shock and awe. You imagine this scene? You imagine being at the foot of this mountain? Seeing God come down in a cloud and hear the, the trumpet blast? Hear God speaking through this trumpet? These trumpets? I mean, the writer here is writing for effect. I don't want us to miss it. He's piling description upon description to make it clear the situation of a return to Judaism. You want to go back from the mountain of grace, go back to this mountain where you'll be vaporized? You're just giving yourself a sentence to hell if you go back to, the, to works righteousness. That's what he's saying. He's showing the situation in which Moses brought the 12 tribes and warning Christians, do not return there. Do not go there. The old covenant situation he describes is not very attractive, is it? It's downright fearful. It may be touched, but do not touch. It's something, the writer of Hebrews here says, it, you, we've not come to some to something that may be touched like that. It could be touched, but don't you touch. Don't mishandle the things of God. It's, it speaks of how we ought to handle the things of God. Going into ministry, some of you guys in seminary, be careful how you handle the things of God. This is sacred ground right here. Be careful how we handle this, right? We're not here for a life lesson, for a life hack. And you don't preach it that way. You preach Christ in all of His fullness. His terrifying holiness and His perfect righteousness and His grace, right? Because that's what's, that's what's in play right here in Hebrews chapter 12. 
It may be touched, but do not touch. God told Moses, set limits for the people all around it. We just read this saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountains, they will be put to death. Just vaporized. Imagine what happened at Nagasaki and Hiroshima. We dropped the two atomic bombs on Japan in World War II. People were just vaporized. I imagine that's what would happen here. God just vaporizes you. Anyone who touches the mountain. When a man came to, at the mountain of the law, there was separation between man and God. A separation made necessary by our sin and His holiness. He calls it a blazing fire back here in Hebrews 12. Again, alluding to Exodus 19 and 20. And this fire was real. It was a fire that could be felt, obviously. To menace the people with its hot, destructive power. This message was the same one delivered by the flaming sword of the angel at the Garden of Eden. That was a barrier to keep them out, right? And this flaming fire, it says, keep out, lest you be burned. God is, God is keeping them out for their own good. Of course, for His glory. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and a trumpet voice. And this is what it meant to come to God under the administration of the law, under the old covenant. There was a trumpet blast and a voice, a thunder that terrified the people. If God spoke to us today, I'm always amused by those. There's preachers out there, they'll deliver a message based on what God told them this morning. And I'm thinking, you'd be dead if God really spoke to you. I know he didn't speak to you because you're not dead. He said, hey, so-and-so, televangelist typically, go preach this. It would kill you. It would kill you. That's why I say we're not frightened enough. When we say things like that, God told me to tell you, okay, well, you better be careful with that. Did God tell you that? Because I think you'd be dead if he did. We don't say that lightly. We better never say that lightly. And woe to those who do. You know, we tend to laugh about them in the Reformed community. think, well, you know, those people are kind of crazy. But no, really, it's sad, isn't it? They probably heard it somewhere and they're just aping someone, they're copying someone. But no, it's serious business. I mean, the mountain here, it's roped off. <laughs> you know, it's like you go to the movies or, the, you know, the ride at Six Flags. It's roped off. You can't go in there. It's saying, stay out. You get in trouble if you go in here. It's roped off. You can't go in there. You can't go in there. Thunder and lightning because they could not bear the voice of God. They sent Moses up there to mediate. They said, we don't want to hear anymore. Go up there and mediate for us. Stand between us and God. We need, a, we need an attorney here. Not the, the heavy hitter. We don't need him, right? <laughs> we need, saw about 57 of his signs yesterday between here and Monticello. But no, we need an attorney, an advocate for us, a mediator. And that's what Moses does. That's what he, how he functions, right? He goes up. This blazing, dark, this gloomy, storm-ridden place. He goes right into it. From it blasts the trumpet. And people say, no, 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 don't let us hear. They stop their ears up and say, lest we die. And Moses, who's a, one of the true giants of the faith, a man set apart by God, cries out, I tremble with fear. Even Moses, who knows God intimately, who talks with God, is scared out of his mind. That's what happens when a sinner encounters God. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a wonderment and there's grace, but there's also fear. And I think sometimes because of our exalting of a, an unbiblical definition of the love of God in our churches that we don't fear God anymore. He's just kind of a, a grandpa or a, a, a celestial ATM. You know, we just kind of swipe our card and he gives us what we want and that's his job. And of course, he forgives sins and we sin. We're not perfect, but it's, it's fine, you know. Of course, that's true. He does forgive sin, but we just kind of take this very flippant attitude toward him. This text is saying, no, don't do that. 
We live in Alabama. I've told you this. We saw some of the biggest tornadoes that that's ever been that's ever landed on the ground in this country. And I I remember standing in my yard. Of course, I did what you know a smart country boy does. I went outside so I could see it. <laughs> well, my family trembled in fear in the basement. So I had to get a picture of this thing. You know, that's what guys are like to do. You go out and say, look at this thing. But my thought was this. I thought of Hebrews chapter twelve. And then I went back in the house. But I, mean, I thought I thought. Look at it was a mile wide, and there were trees in this thing. And of course, there were probably people in this thing, but I thought this, it, you could feel the rumble from three miles, whatever, how many miles it was, you could feel this thing. And I just thought, this must have been just, a, this is just a small sample of what it must have been like at Sinai. I mean, when God comes down, a tornado, a tornado, he could just go, just, and blow it out, right? That's kind of what I thought about. That, that's it. It's, it's fearful. And I was, ve- and I was, I actually, I remember my palms got really sweaty thinking, I'm looking at this, and it could come over here and swallow me up, and whoa. That's just, again, that's just a small foretaste, and God gives us those, doesn't he? But what this shows, this mountain shows the, the need sinful man has for a mediator between himself and God. And Moses goes up and represents the people, receives the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, and says, lives this way, going to be faithful to the covenant and this is the mountain to which Israel had been brought, having been delivered from bondage in Egypt. Every element is one which outwardly moves fear. This is a manifestation of the terrible, awful majesty of the presence of God. And they begged that no further, that was the response. And that is the right response. Because even if a beast touches it, he shall be, still be stoned. And the frightening pictures, that's because of God's holiness. I mean, the writer's point is you and the church are likewise brought into the presence of God himself. This is what he's saying to us, to this original audience and also to us today. He said, you were brought into the presence of God himself. You were brought to a mountain. You, beloved, you, friends, have been brought to a mountain, but not that mountain. No, no, no. Praise God, not that mountain. You've been brought to a mountain. It's not Brasstown, Boulder, Blood Mountain either, right? Beautiful, Beautiful as they are, you've been brought to the mountain of grace. That's his point. You want to go back to that mountain? You want some of that? Be prepared to be vaporized. No, you were brought to a mountain, not that mountain. It's a positive comparison. The church, like Israel, has been delivered out of bondage, brought to the presence of God for the purpose of consecration, being set apart for Him and worshiping Him. But the comparison ends and the contrast begin, where the contrast begins. The mediator you need to enter in the presence of God has come, and because of him, you have not come to the mountain. You've come to the second mountain, and that's the mountain of grace. And that's the title of my sermon, and that's the invitation. It's come. Come to the mountain of grace. Mount Zion, he calls it the beginning of verse 22. He says, but, it's, a big, it's an important word there, but you have come. You've not come to that mountain, but you have come to a mountain. You have come. Come to Mount Zion, there it is, and to the city of the living God. Remember way back in Hebrews 1, we talked about Augusta and the two cities and how we're going to a city, right? There's a builder, maker, is God, and that's the city Abraham was looking for and we're looking for, right? We understand the gospel rightly and the Bible rightly. Well, that's it. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. I love the descriptors here. And the innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. 
the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mountain number two, the city of the living God. Christians through faith in Christ have come into the presence of God himself to the place where God exercises his sovereignty and from which he sends deliverance. This Zion, this is God's Acropolis. This is the seat of his throne. And we're led to this new mountain, remembering the former mountain that was covered with darkness and gloom and fire. That's the backdrop. That was what we've been rescued from. Now we've been rescued to Sinai. No, wait, from Sinai, but to the mountain of grace, from the mountain that prohibited the entrance of sinful man. Like I said, like it was like Eden that we were kept out. No man, woman, or child could ever even set foot on the mountain. But here on the mountain of grace is a city in the clouds where God's people dwell. The sign of Mount Sinai produced fear, but this mountain scene is of great encouragement. It should be to you this morning. No matter where you are in life, if you're in Christ or what's going on in your life. If you're suffering, and some of you probably are or you will, this is intended to encourage you and encourage us. Don't come near Sinai, I said, but this mountain, the voice of the invitation has come. We approach Sinai with tremble with fear. Even Moses tells us, uh, as the text tells us this, but to draw near this mountain is to find our hope renewed. This is the difference between coming to Christ, our mediator, and coming before him ourselves. Because really you're going to come before God, on the last day, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, or you're going to come clothed in your own righteousness. You're going to have that attorney, that mediator, or you're going to be your own mediator. God has transformed the mountain of fear, though, into a mountain of grace. Upon this mountain is the city of God, he says here. To this you have come. He says, look upon it. Look upon it. The eyes of faith. Look at this mountain. All that is here, all that is there, what he's going to tell us here, it's all yours. All these things are yours. All these things. Even the blessings of God and God himself. Look at what you've come to. Several things here. One, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Verse 22. The old covenant was given through the mediation of angels. They were the ones blaring the trumpets. They were stoking the fires on Mount Sinai. But now upon this mountain, this mountain of Christ, this mountain of grace, multitude of angels are seen in their, in their festal gathering. They're there to celebrate. They're there to worship. They're not fearful. They're there to worship. They're there to lead us in worship. We've got their festal gathering. We're going to a, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Greater than any fried chicken lunch we could have here by a, a thousand times, right? As wonderful as that is. We'll have one of those soon. But boy, it points to something far greater, doesn't it? They're in a feastal gathering, a festal gathering. They're a welcoming party. They're inviting you to join in their glad worship. They've come and said, come, we, we welcome you here into the celestial city. That's why that's the, this is the welcoming party. The trumpets are to trumpet your arrival in glory, not the uh, trumpet the fear of God. The king has come in judgment. He also says that you've come to the assembly or the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Verse 23, those enrolled in heaven, we belong to this role. That's what he's speaking of here. The, the firstborn in biblical times received a double portion of the inheritance. And here we have the whole city made up of only those kinds of heirs. That's you, that's me. We receive our portion. Heirs receive their portion in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, by birth. 
not by the achievement or deserts, but so too the firstborn saints come into their new rights by the birth of Christ, by the new birth that we have in Christ. We're born again, born into this family. And we get all the blessings that are yea and amen, yes and amen in Christ. So we have all the blessings of the firstborn sons, right? Sons and daughters of God. Not through biological birth, but through the new birth. Through the new birth, if we've undergone the new birth. I mean, the status is, is realized solely by faith alone. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, John 1. 12, he became the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in him, that's who you are if you're in him. If you've come to the mountain of grace, the firstborn of those especially beloved by the Father, the, ch the church. Luke 10, 20 says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. He told the disciples that your, the spirits are subject to you. They said, Look at this, the demons, they're subject to us. He said, Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in this. Rejoice in that your names are written in heaven. Are you rejoicing in that this morning more than anything else? That your names are written in heaven? Or are you rejoicing in something else? He said, no, no, don't rejoice in that. You have the spirits, that's wonderful. They're subject to you, disciples, apostles. No, you rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Are you rejoicing in that today? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? So you've come to the assembly. He says, you, you've done it now. You've come to this now. It's your, this is, these are your blessings now. You've come to God, the judge of all. And this is something that the Israelites found on Mount Sinai, a judging God. A God who comes in judgment, in wrath, in His holiness because we're not holy. We need to be made holy. The law-giving God in the Old Covenant, God who gave the Ten Commandments on the mountain. That's who they come to at the first mountain, at Mount Sinai. For sinners, this is a... A sight that chills even the warmest welcome. It's not clearly not the meaning here, though. Indeed, the point is quite the opposite of condemnation. Here in the new city, we, we see God as judge, yet the fire and the smoke and the dark and the gloom, the intimidating threat, blare of the trumpets, all those things, where are they? They're gone. They're gone. We needn't fear because those things are gone. What we see, this judging God is not hell, but heaven. Not to those arrested and punished, but to the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's us. Those who are clothed in the spotless righteousness of Christ. That's it. And if you're in Christ, that's who you are. You've been given new garments, right? You've been taken those soiled, filthy garments of your own righteousness that have been taken off. And the righteousness of Christ has been deposited into your account. You've been given new robes if you are in Christ. And so when you go get there, it's to the spirits made perfect. This great host around God and the, 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 the judge have been acquitted in his court. You've been acquitted. You've been declared not guilty. You're judged righteous and made perfect. This is the host to which we now belong. If we have come to God through faith in Jesus, the judge is also the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose perfect sacrifice, that is the ground of our acceptance and our justification. His sacrifice, his work at Calvary, that's the ground. And that and that alone. We're people of Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, right? We're people of Christ alone, the ground of your being made righteous, of your spirit being made righteous. Being made holy. Because Jesus paid the entire debt of our sin. This is why Paul so beautifully in Romans 8 can point out to us. He says, what shall we say to these things? 
if God is for us, who can be against us? And this is who you are now, today, if you're in Christ. If you're out of Christ, woe be to you. You're under the, you're subject to Mount Sinai and all the judgments there. And the fearfulness there should overcome you. But no, he says, who shall, who, who shall what do we should say to you things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely, freely give us all things? And then he says this, who will bring any charge against God's elect? I love that. You ever been accused? I mean, we get accused on this earth all the time, right? You're, you accuse people, your people accuse you, your neighbors accuse you, your kids accuse you, right? So but he's saying here, no, no, who can bring any charge against God's elect eternally? None. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Nobody. Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, is seated at the right hand of God. Right now, he's there interceding for you. In other words, you have that mediator right now. And Satan and your flesh can charge you with sins and charge you with being outside of Christ and charge you with being a hypocrite, charge you with being a false confessor, false professor. But no one can bring you a charge against God's elect. The devil's a defeated foe, right? He, he can say, guilty, guilty, guilty. You just pointed the blood of Christ. You're, I have an attorney. I'm going to refer you to my attorney. We love to say that, don't we? I like to say that this morning. I'm going to refer you to my attorney. <laughs> we can say that, can't we? I'm going to refer you to, refer you to my attorney, refer you to Jesus and his righteousness. His blood is shed and pleads now for me. This very morning, who shall bring a charge against God? Elect no, no one can bring any charge against God's elect. Because God has justified you, declared you not guilty in, the, in his court, and you're free. Because Jesus paid the penalty. He bore your sentence, the sentence of death you deserve to bear. He says, finally, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I think this is placed last for emphasis, for the climax. It gets better and better, and now Jesus. You come to Jesus. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. You come to Jesus. You come to Jesus. Moses was the mediator. He stepped toward Mount Zion on behalf of the people and went up, right? He went up with fear and trembling, but Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant in his blood. He's the one that takes away our fear. He strips away the clouds of God's fury and opens wide the gates of paradise for all who will come to him by faith. Good news. Good news. He bore hell's wrath. All of hell's wrath you deserved and I deserved. He has paid it all. This is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. He's saying it would be utterly foolish to go back to any other, any other mediator, or any other religion, any other way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. It would be foolish to try to go to some other way of salvation, right? To return to Mount Sinai, to try to treasure up your own righteousness for yourself. So where are you looking for salvation? Church attendance, you've been a Southern Baptist all your life, you're a pastor's son or daughter, you go to seminary, you can name all five points of Calvinism like backward. No, Jesus only, Jesus only, he's everything you need, that's, that's his point here, we've come to Jesus, the media of the new covenant, he said the blood that 
speaks a better word. The, Moses sprinkled the blood of the sacrifices on the people, and the old covenant community is being formed. And now Jesus is seeing doing the same for the new covenant. Are you trusting in him? Are you trusting in the sprinkled blood of Christ, sprinkling his, who sprinkled his own blood for your sins? It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Think about the story of Cain and Abel, the first murder in the Bible back in early chapters of Genesis. Where Cain, jealous of his brother's sacrifice, that God accepted his sacrifice and not Cain's, killed Abel, the first murderer, the first murderer. Of course, Abel was the first man in heaven, we assume. His blood was shed and it spoke something because God cursed Cain. The blood of Abel spoke a word of vengeance, but by contrast, the blood of Christ pleads with God for your forgiveness, for my forgiveness, the only place we can go. It speaks of peace. The blood of Abel speaks of turmoil and murder, right? It's murder. The ground soaks up his blood. It's, it's murder. And Jesus' blood says, no, you have peace with God. I brought you in. And now you who were once at war with God, you're now at peace with God. And that's a war you can't win, by the way. I mean, look to Sinai. The blood that, that is the abiding virtue of Christ offered life, his substitution is in heaven, inseparable from the glorified king and priest. Hebrews 10.22 said, let us draw near. He said this, preached on this a few weeks ago. Let us draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's it. That's it. Come this morning. Why would you delay? Why would you look somewhere else for salvation? Why? Why? Let us draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith to Christ. I mean, this is such a contrast, the blood of Abel and the blood of Christ. Both were killed by their brothers, Abel by Cain and Jesus by his fellow Jews, right? No less the sins of the firstborn brothers who share eternity with him, us, right? We're his brothers in eternity, and we killed him. It was our sin that held him there, just like Cain killed Abel. You see the, the, con, the, the comparison here? But what a radically different message. Jesus' blood cries, it cries, peace be still, just like the words that calm the winds and the waves on Canaan that day. Jesus' blood drives away the storm. It puts out the fire. The tempest of Sinai is stilled to make Mount Zion a place of peace and calm and joy forevermore. That's what you have in him. Why would you look anywhere else? Abel's blood cries guilty. 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 And if you're outside of Christ, you're guilty. And a sentence of eternal death hangs over you like a sword ready to fall at any moment. But Jesus' blood cries not guilty. Abel's blood, condemned. You're condemned. But Jesus' blood cries redeemed. Redeemed. Abel's blood passes a sentence of eternal death. Jesus' blood brings us eternal life, friends. You have come. You have come as we close here. You have come, he says. What does this passage say about what it means to be a Christian? Well, I think the key is verse 22. You have come. This is your identity. Even greater than being a member of Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. We're going we're to welcome in some new members here in a few moments. But this, is far, this membership is far greater, right? This is a little foretaste and kind of a finger that points to that in a, in a small way. So you have come. He didn't say you will one day come or you are coming. You have come now, today. If you're in Christ. I mean, the dark glass is taken away so we may have God's perspective on our present existence as well as the future, our future. 
It's not only a picture of our, our, our future reality, but what we have now. You're a Christian. That's most fundamentally who you are. That's where you must find your identity in Christ alone. I know young people, I talk to young people, even my own family, and say, I'm just trying to figure out who I am. And I get that. But you find yourself in Christ. He's your treasure. He's your portion of forever. And, and all the, uh, everything else will be added to you, right? So well, I struggle with things. Yeah, but you're, you're in Christ. You're a Christian who struggles with things, okay? Your identity is not found in your problems. It's in Christ. This is who you are now. Central to who you are. And it's central identity of everyone sitting around you. You can love those people sitting around you. Even those among us who are maybe harder to love. A little ornery. We love them because they're in Christ, right? This is who they are, too. If you could see them now as they will certainly be in the city when this is all, the kingdom is finally consummated fully, to the, one, the kingdom to which you now belong, you would marvel at the glory that God has prepared for them and for you and for all of us who loved him. Those people around you, they're destined for glory. Are you? They're destined to be perfected. Are you? Destined to be conformed to the image of the firstborn brother, Jesus Christ. Are you? Are you? I mean, think about this when you maybe despair over besetting sins. You just can't beat this one sin or these five sins or, I mean, you know, welcome to the club. No. I am being sanctified and made like Jesus. I'm not perfect yet, but I'm in Christ. That's my identity. When you have doubts and fears, look, at, look to the mountain. Look to the mountain of grace, not to the mountain of Sinai. That will say, boy, you're guilty. And you better straighten up and clean yourself up and go to church. I used to think that. I used to believe that. I tried for years to clean myself up, and I never felt clean. I don't think I was clean. Hebrews 10, 10 to 14 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's it. Once for all. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You're being sanctified in this life, but you're declared righteous, made perfect, he says. This is how God sees us now in Christ, in our destiny according to the power of God's saving grace. And he calls us to rest our hearts in him with thanksgiving to offer God acceptable worship of our whole lives. In the Lord of the Rings, in that scene, Aragorn said, you're not frightened enough because I know what hunts you. Of course, it was the ring wraiths. <laughs> and if you're in Mount Sinai, you're not frightened enough. If you're still outside of Christ, I know what hunts you. It's the holiness of God. And it's his wrath if you Stand outside of Christ. I don't want to hunt you, and you're not frightened enough. Sinai says do, but Zion says done. Are you going to flee to him today? Are you going to flee to him today? Because the invitation today is as it always is. The Spirit and the bride say what? Who knows this? The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Come. Let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price come. Because Jesus paid it all. Let's pray. Father, there is so much here. And I don't know that I've done it justice. 
But in spite of my weakness, God, I pray that this text, you would bind it to our hearts. If there are those here who are depending on their own righteousness, who are saying, I'll do it, I'll get, I'll get it done, we're a can-do people, I pray you would explode that notion, that false teaching through this text, God, and you would draw them to yourself, help them to see that they must come to the mountain of grace, and that the invitation this morning is, as always, come. And you would draw them to yourself irresistibly and effectually, and they would no longer live for their glory but yours. And God, help us to find our identity in this mountain, the mountain of grace, to see ourselves as been weighed on that mountain and, and others to weigh others accordingly, God. And we, may we leave here rejoicing this morning, not that the demons are subject to us, but that our names are written in the book of life. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.